All right, so here we go. We are in week number five of our series, Bring Your Own Bible. So let me see it. Who, who brought your Bible today? Wave them at me. All right, fantastic. And if you forgot your Bible, you are in luck because you can just grab a Bible in the seat in front of you or near you. Um, and if, you, if you're like, you know, Devin, uh, I don't even own a Bible. Well, guess what? You, that orange Bible in the seat in front of you, I want you to, if you don't own a Bible, I want you to take that. I want you to write your name in it and allow God's word to be written in your heart. That is a gift to you from New Life Church. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab that and take that today. Make it your own. Well, we are on this journey. Each year, I like to take a bit of time and just talk about the Bible. Um, because if it wasn't for Scripture, it wasn't for the Bible, then I just don't, don't know that we would really be a church. I mean, if you take the Bible out of the church, I mean, what do you got? Uh, is, we believe it is God's Word. It is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is good for teaching. Uh, we believe that it, it helps reveal truth. And in, in a world full of lies, in a world full of fake it is nice to know that there is something that we can be rooted in our faith in, that, a, a foundation by which we can stand. And so we've been talking about the Bible now. This is week five that we're talking about the Bible. Next week will be the final week of Bring Your Own Bible. And next week we're going to talk about applying it into your life, uh, which is very important, isn't it? Uh, so, so let's just recap a little bit about where we've been on this journey. In the first week of Bring Your Own Bible, we really talked about the reliability of the Bible. Like how, because the argument goes that, well, if the Bible has been, uh, if it's a copy of 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 a copy, then how do we know that what was written originally is even what we have today? How do we know that? Well, in, in that message, we kind of unpacked how we can know that the Bible is reliable, and it has to do with the number of original manuscripts that we still have in our possession today. And, uh, and actually, we have over 25,000 copies of original manuscripts, and the more copies you have, the more you can compare them and find out if, they, uh, if, they're, if the message stands true. And actually, the Bible has more physical evidence to its reliability than any other document in the world. And so, uh, so we can know for certain that the Bible is a reliable source. And in um, that week, we talked about other things. We talked about translations, and we talked about you know chapters and verses, and all. It was kind of like a Bible 101 that first week. Uh, and then the second week, we kind of asked the question, well, why study the Bible? Why is, why is that important to the Christian life? Why, when I've made a decision to follow Jesus, then why is understanding and knowing and studying Scripture so important? Well, we said that the, studying the Bible is essential. It is essential for growth. You know, uh, remember Paul, he said, listen, some of y'all are still drinking milk, but, but you, need to be, you need to be eating solid food by now. What's going on? Well, it's because many times in our faith, we just get comfortable, we get stuck, but, but we have to keep growing. And God's word is essential to growth, it's essential to spiritual maturity, and it's essential for spiritual effectiveness. And it all comes back to being connected to Scripture, to the Word of God. And then in week three, we talked about progressive revelation, that all throughout the Bible is this theme of redemption. But, if we, but uh, when we go back to Old Testament verses, some of them look quite scary to people. 
Was because, I mean, was God done redeeming the world? No, he wasn't done redeeming the world. He wasn't done redeeming the world until the time of the risen Christ. And so God had a lot of work to do. And so when we look at some of these funny scriptures in the Old Testament, and we want to point to that and say, is that what God's like? Well, well, no, you have to kind of understand the whole story of what God, the activity of God throughout scripture and what he was doing. This helps, make, this helps make it all make more sense. And so we actually looked at a scripture where Moses, when he told the Israelites, hey, when we take a city and you see a pretty girl and you want her to be yours, listen, you can take her as your wife, but shave her head and clip her nails. And then if she doesn't want to be with you, let her go on her way, but you cannot sell her. And we look at, and people look at that Bible and they ask what? Two questions, right? And when all of our students, when all of our kids go to university, they're going to get asked these two questions. And maybe you've been asked these two questions before too. They say, they point to our Bible and say, is this inspired? And we say, yes. Does God ever change? No. And then they look at a verse like that and say, you want to go to heaven with a God that treats women like that? Well, if you understand the story behind the story, then you would understand that, that the moment that Moses said this, he was actually moving the entire world forward in the way of human rights. Now, was God done redeeming women's rights? No, he was not. Because if, I, if you were a woman today, you would probably say you'd rather be a woman today than back then, right? Okay, women, would you rather be a woman today or in 1800? Or 1,500, right? I mean, like God, he's, he's still redeeming people t- today, isn't he? And so we zoom in on scripture like that. We say, is that what God's like? And you have to understand that God wasn't done redeeming the world, but what took, what took place in many of those instances was a quantum leap forward for people because the day before that was written, all the other surrounding people groups, when they saw a woman and wanted her, they treated her as property. But Moses says, no, 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 we don't do that. You'll marry her. You'll be responsible for her. You'll take care of her. And, and she'll shave her head, clip her nails, because that's how we mourn. So she's going to mourn like one of us. And if she doesn't want to be with you, then you let her go on her way. But you will not sell her because you don't own her. Now, that's a pretty good move. And God wasn't done. And we look at things in the Old Testament, and God was not done, but he's helping move the world forward until, until the full revelation of God in Jesus, the risen Christ. And that is still what we, we, we point back to today. So we talked about this idea of progressive revelation, that the Bible is not a static record of what God is, but it is a progressive revelation of what man thought God was at the time that helped move humanity so far forward until the day of the risen Christ. And so that was in week three of Bring Your Own Bible. And last week we talked about the Bible in context. Because you can sometimes take something out of context and come up with a different conclusion. How many times have, have, have uh, maybe on the news or someone takes a tweet or some, takes one little thing somebody says out of context and creates a whole nother narrative. And then the news interviews this person and says, did you say that? And they're like, well, yeah, I said that, but you have to understand it in context. Well, this happens to the Bible all the time. People point to a single verse or, and come up with a different conclusion. What we know is that whatever the original author intended for the original audience is still what it means today. So there and then and the here and now. We, t- we talked about all, all of this in that week. We really talked about two, 
things about context. There, there are several, but we focus in on two. One is literary context, and one is historical context. In other words, when we look at a passage in the Bible, and we really want to interpret it, we want to understand it, well, then where does it fit in, 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 its, in its literature? In other words, what was said before it, what was said after it, that helps give it in context. And so when we, when we read Scripture, when we, when we have a verse we're looking at, we want to see it and read it in context. And, and, and then I taught you this, this phrase. I asked you to write it down. Maybe you remember it. But when you read Scripture and you see therefore, what do you do? You look to see what it's there for. In other words, when you see therefore in the Bible, you should back up and see what was written prior to that because it's connecting it. And so this is literary context, understanding scripture in a larger context of, of, a, of a passage, of the book, or the entire thing. And so that helps us with understanding, and then historical context is much like progressive revelation we talked about, is understanding where and when this took place in the arc of history. That helps us a lot with understanding the Bible. Now that's just all review. If you want to get caught up, if you're like, man, that sounds interesting, I want to know more, you can go to newlife4kokoma.org, all of our messages are archived online there. But today uh, I want to talk a little bit more on the topic of uh, interpretation, now, all of these things that we've talked about so far help and aid us in, in, in interpretation. If you remember, we talked about exegesis, eisegesis, funny words. Uh, we're we're going to go a little bit further with interpretation and helping you, like, I want you to love to read your Bible again. Like, like if I can save the Bible for you, then, then, I've, then I mean, that, that is a huge win for me. But even if I inspire you to, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack that thing open a little bit more and, and get into it, then, then that's a win for me as well. I want to talk about interpretation. But first, I want to share a few stories of misinterpretation. Have you ever misinterpreted somebody? Have you ever been misinterpreted? Uh, married people, have you ever misinterpreted something that your spouse has said to you? And uh, you took it as honest truth. Well, uh, let, me, let me share a few stories of misinterpretation. One, one young mother uh, recalls a day that she took her toddler to the park. She said, my toddler was about to hit her head on a bar at the playground. So I yelled to her, duck! She quacked at me. And then hit her head on the bar. <laughs> One person recalls a time they say, uh, at the restaurant I placed my order. And the waiter asked me if I wanted a super salad. I said, super salad? Yes! I'll take one. The waiter asked again, Super salad? I repeated, yes. He seemed like he needed to ask me again, so he said it a bit differently. He asked, do you want a salad or soup? <laughs> Got it. How about this one person? They, they say that I remember a time where I went to the doctor's office, and the doctor asked me a, a number of questions about my health, including this question. The doctor said, 
how's your stool? I patiently told him, we have chairs, but they're all fine. (laughs) Those are some funny misinterpretations. And so it's important to understand and accurately understand and interpret the Bible. And so I want to give you a few things that will help you with that today. I don't plan on taking a lot of time. I've, I've gone a little longer than usual the last couple of weeks. I'm going to redeem a little bit of that today for you so that uh, hopefully you're ready to eat chicken noodles after, after when we're done. At the end, we are going to read a little bit of a lengthier portion of Scripture, which is something we've been trying to do throughout this series where I just shut up and we just read the Bible together. And so we're going to do that at the end. We're going, and so if you, if you want to be prepared for that, you can turn to Romans chapter 4. It's going to be at the very end. So you're going to put a, put a finger there or, or bookmark it in some way. But Romans chapter 4, uh, that'll be later in the message. And if you're in an orange Bible, it's page 769. But, but, but first I want to share with you a couple of scriptures that will be on the screen. The first is 2 Timothy 3.16. And here's what it says. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, again, we, in week one, we talked about how the, the scripture is inspired. Spire means to breathe, and so to inspire means to breathe life into it. If you remember, we're all made of dirt that God breathed into. We're all inspired dirt. And so, again, uh, in 2 Timothy, it says, all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, all Scripture is inspired, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible helps us in righteousness, and how to live upright. And it, and it serves as a way that God can, can help us be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, now, when I made the decision to follow Jesus, I knew I needed to be equipped. Um, I, I'm an avid golfer, and so uh, golfers seem to think that they have to be thoroughly equipped when they go out to the golf course. And so, uh, so, so many guys, I mean, they're going to buy all the latest equipment. They're, they're going to get the, 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 newest, the newest driver because they're just convinced it's going to make them hit the ball longer, further, straighter. Or they, they, they want the latest technology of the ball and, the, and, and fresh wedges because it'll help them spin it more. And, and, and really, I can beat them all, to be honest with you. So they, well, uh, hurt myself patting my back so much. Uh, so, but there's this idea that we like to be equipped. When our students get ready to go back to school for the first day, they, they, they want to get new school outfits and new school shoes and, 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 uh, and, and the such. And so we all understand what it means to, to feel fully equipped, but when it comes to the faith, some people are running out to battle and they're in their bathing suit. Like they're not equipped. And so, but it's the scripture that helps equip us for every good work. Even Jesus, when he walked the earth, 
he encountered the devil himself when he was fasting out in the wilderness. And every time the devil would come at him with some form of temptation, Jesus' response was always with the word of God. He would look at the devil and he would say, it is written. It is written. And you can't be equipped to combat the difficult circumstances in your life if you don't have his word here. Now, we have a discipleship track here at New Life, and uh, we have two terms. We have T1 and T2 going on right now. And I would tell you that they are memorizing Scripture every week because it is thoroughly equipping them for every good work. So all Scripture is inspired. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 47, it says this, they are not just idle words for you. So this, this, these scriptures, these words of God, they're not just idle words. They are your life. They are your life. Out in the wilderness, if you remember, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, they just escaped Egypt, across the Red Sea, and uh, I mean, there's many, many, many of them. Some scholars think even close to a million wandering the wilderness. I mean, how do you feed that many people? That's a good question. They were hungry. So they prayed, and God began to provide for them fresh manna every morning. Every morning, this manna would show up like dew out on the ground, and they had this instruction to go out and gather manna for that day. If they tried to gather more manna than they needed, then in the morning they found that it would be full of maggots and it would be rotting, but every day they had to go gather manna. This manna, Scripture says in Numbers, that it was like a coriander seed, which is a very, very hard seed. But they would take it and bake it into bread, bake it into like kind of wafers. The only way to do that would be to take the manna that they gathered, they'd have to crush it, process it into a flour, and then bake it. And this is much like the Word of God. We have to gather it daily, but then we have to process it in order to digest it, for it to nourish us. And, and And it's a daily thing, or I would even say a regular activity that we are to do. Jesus actually quotes this verse of, about the, the Israelites and their manna making bread. And Jesus answered in Matthew 4, 3, he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. These are not just idle words, man. They are life. They are life. And so so that, that's Jesus' instruction to us about his word. It is life. It's more important than anything else to be rooted and, and, and founded in the word of God. Now, I want to give you seven tips for interpreting scripture. Seven tips. And, uh, and, I, and, and maybe you're like, oh man, I'm going to have to write seven things. You can, and I hope you do, but also if you have the YouVersion Bible app, if you get on your Bible app and you're logged in and you go to events, I, I don't know if you knew this, but you can go to events every Sunday on the Bible app, and find New Life Church, and boom, there's all of our notes right there on your phone. It's already ready for you. And so if you didn't know that, there you go. If you, and if you're a pro, a New Life pro, then you already know that. Uh, let's talk about seven tips 
for interpreting the Bible. Number one is this, is to read the Bible reverently. Read the Bible reverently. In other words, approach the Bible with deep respect. And, uh, you know, one time I was uh, in a foreign country and one of the pastors on the trip laid their Bible on the ground. And, and the people were just shocked that he would disrespect the Bible like that. And because that's how reverently they thought of Scripture. Now, if you ask me, like, I, do I take care of this? Yes, I take care of this because uh, this particular Bible is, is full of all my own personal notes and markings. It's my own personal journey inside of this Bible. And so, yeah, I take care of it. But um, I don't worship this physical Bible, right? But, but it is something that we should revere. We should, see, we should come at it with great honor and respect, more of its contents than just its makeup. So if you put your Bible on the ground this morning and you're reaching for it right now, like, like it's okay. Okay, it's okay. That was just an illustration of how some people so revere the Bible. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong. Um, I'm just saying that, like, for me, the physical Bible is one thing, but the content of the Bible is what I really revere, not just its physical pages. Because we could, we could really revere this and we could walk into church and go home and put it on the shelf and, and keep it all, you know. I'd, I'd rather see this thing wore out because, because you can't help but just find, find those words of life for you, okay? But read the Bible reverently, deep respect, honor, understanding this, that Scripture is authoritative, which means it has authority and so we should revere it when we come to it with authority. Uh, I, I remember one time I had, uh, I had a supervisor that was like, uh, he, he, he was a tough person. He was, he was a tough person. And periodically, uh, I would get called to the supervisor's office in the back office. And uh, I'd be like, oh man, I wonder what I did. Because I know that he would have the authority to write me up. He had the authority to fire me. The authority to demote me. The authority to just make my life miserable. And uh, every time I was called back to the office, I'd kind of go into that office with a little reverence. You know, I, I have a very, very honoring because I understood the authority that they had. That should be our same approach to Scripture, understanding that the Scripture has authority, and we should not take that lightly. So read the Bible reverently. Number two is to read the Bible prayerfully. Read the Bible prayerfully. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He leads us into truth. And so every time before you take time to maybe do devotions or or read the Scripture, I would encourage you to start off by just by beginning with prayer. And I simply just pray something like this. I say, Holy Spirit, uh, I pray that you show me something today I've never seen, that I will do something that I've never done. Give me great understanding and wisdom to see what I can't see and to hear what I haven't heard. In Jesus' name, amen. And I I just pray something like that. And, And I prayerfully consider 
things of Scripture. The third thing is this, is to read the Bible collectively. This is what I mean by that. This is kind of the idea that we kind of talked about in the progressive revelation, that is to read the Bible collectively means to really have like a, a zoomed out perspective. And, and to read the Bible collectively takes some time. The more that you read, the more that you understand, the more that you know of the Bible, this is to read the Bible with the big picture in mind. Um, to see themes throughout the Bible. There is one main theme that runs from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Do you know what it is? It's redemption. Redemption is, is the one main theme that runs all throughout the entire, entire book. And so sometimes as you're reading, you may even be like, oh, I see redemption in this story. So read the Bible collectively. The fourth thing is read the Bible humbly. To, to be humble when you read the Bible. And, and this is really what I mean by that, is when you read the Bible, and we remember we talked about exegesis, which means we pull meaning out of Scripture. We don't try to put meaning onto Scripture. When you properly pull meaning out of Scripture, and it conflicts with your current thinking, you don't change the Bible, you change you. Be humble enough to say, I've been getting it wrong. Be humble enough to say that I see I have a character flaw that needs addressed. Be humble enough to see, hmm, I've not been forgiving like Jesus said to forgive. So to come at the scripture by laying down your pride, be humble, and when you do that, you can actually begin to see it transform your life. So come at it humbly. The fifth thing is to read the Bible carefully. Read it carefully. And what I mean by that is sometimes it's okay to take small bites. Take small bites. Uh, what, what's the saying? How do, you, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And, and uh, many people, especially when they, maybe they're new to the faith, they, they're, they're like, they kind of flip through. It's like, oh, man, that is some small print. Holy. Uh, wow. This, is, this is, seems like a lot of things to know. Um, well, again, just one bite at a time. And if you're new, if you're new to the Bible, um, I would not start uh, in the beginning. If I were you, I would encourage you, uh, to start in the Gospel of John and then read Acts and then read Romans. Like, that's where I would encourage you to start because then it helps make the entire story uh, hopefully make some more, to be more clear to you. And so read it carefully. Take your time in small bits. And, and, uh, and, and so an example of this would be sometimes I like to sit down and, and I'll read the, an entire book of the Bible. So like, let, let's say I sit down and like Galatians is six chapters. So I may sit down and I'm going to read all of Galatians in one sitting. And I love to do that because then I can see it uh, in, its, in all the themes. Like, kind of like we said, I can see it collectively instead of chapter by, I'll read the whole thing. Boom, one sitting. And then I like to go back and read it Carefully. And because then I have the perspective of the entire book, when I read it now carefully, 
now things are really clicking for me sometimes. So this is just a tip. This is a life hack of reading the Bible. Sometimes it's good to read large sections, but then just get in and take your time and read it carefully. The sixth thing I would say is to read the Bible Christologically. I know that's a word that we use all the time. It means to read the Bible with the understanding that so much of it points to to Christ. So then like you can read, for instance, the flood story, Noah and the ark, and you can see that the ark is actually salvation. Or you can see that for Jonah, when he gets thrown off the boat in the storm of the sea, and he gets swallowed by a whale, or it says a fish, he gets swallowed by a fish. And sometimes, I remember as a kid, I'd read that and be like, man, what did Jonah do so wrong to get swallowed by a fish? But I tell you what, if you got thrown off the whale watch boat when you're on vacation out in the middle of the ocean and you get swallowed by a fish, that's salvation. (laughs) That's salvation, buddy. And he was in the belly of the fish for three days before the fish then uh, gave him up out on shore. We read that through the lens of Jesus. We see that Jesus was buried in the grave for three days before he rose again. And it is our great salvation. So, so much of Scripture points to Christ. So as you read, kind of, kind of consider what could this possibly be saying about Christ. Number, and number seven, this is the hardest one. Read the Bible obediently. This has everything to do with application. And, uh, we're, and we're really going to talk all about application as we finish this uh, discussion up next week. Now, in the Bible, there's, like, like we've talked about, um, I hope I'm not losing anybody. I know, like, th- today's going to be a little bit different. Today's very hands-on, teaching, uh, that kind of thing. But uh, in the Bible, we've talked about all kinds of different literature. There's all kinds of different literature in the Bible. And, uh, and, and some people say, I read the Bible literally. Like, you, you can, but it's, it's also very important to read the Bible literally, as, as according to the t- kind of literature that it is. There's different kinds of passages in the Bible. There's, uh, there's narrative passages and what are called didactic passages. Uh, narrative, obviously, would be literature that is meant to relate a series of events uh, these, these are large portions of Scripture, even in the Gospels, the book of Acts. Much of the Old Testament is all narrative it, because it's telling a story. Just like you think, when a, a narrator is telling a story, narrative passages are telling a story. Uh, didactic passages, the word didactic means to teach. And this is literature that is meant to teach or to explain Examples of didactic passages in the Bible would be pretty much anything the Apostle Paul wrote, his, his letters to churches, the epistles. Um, didactic passages help interpret the story. So this is what I would say. If you write anything down, it's not on the screen, but this is what, I, this is what you should know, is to interpret narrative passages with the help of didactic passages. 
okay, I know I'm, I'm speaking a little deeper than I usually do. So a lot of the Bible tells a story. Some of the Bible helps us understand the meaning of those stories. Does that help? And so it's important sometimes that we don't try to interpret meaning from narrative passages alone, because you can get weird ideas, but you do it with the help of Scripture that helps give us understanding and clarity of the story passages. And in other words, uh, uh, this, is, this is the next point that you should know, is that Scripture helps interpret Scripture. So when it comes to interpretation of Scripture, the Bible helps interpret the Bible. And so the more we read it understanding, the more help that we will get from it. So I, I, I'm going to help you today, hopefully, we're going to practice this. And I, and I want you to see how Scripture will help interpret Scripture. In other words, how didactic passages, that means to teach, help us understand narrative passages. So hopefully you turn to Romans chapter 4. And let me set up Romans 4 a little bit for us. Um, by going back to the Torah passages in, specifically in Genesis. In Genesis, we're introduced to a man named Abraham. And uh, maybe if you grew up in Sunday school, you know the song. Father Abraham had many sons, right? And uh, had many sons, had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. So let's, okay. And so Abraham be- became the father of the Israelites, which was the line of Jesus. Um, God made a promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would be a nation. In those days, in order to be a nation, it means that you have a really, really big family. A family so big that you have to have your own land, your own governance, and you ultimately would become a nation. So God promises Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Big. What There was one problem. Abraham was old. He was older than anybody here today. The second problem was much like the first problem. His wife was old. 100 years old. That kind of old. And, and, and God... He, he made this covenant with Abraham that he'd be a great nation. And as a sign for that, that covenant uh, was the sign of circumcision. We've talked about that in previous weeks. And then through a series of events, um, Abraham does have a son with his wife. Now, they kind of skirted it and tried their own way, if you remember that. You know, Abraham, uh, uh, Sarah's like, I'm old. You should, you should have a baby with my servant. And they did. And God's like, that's not what I meant. <laughs> so anyway, eventually Abraham does have a son with his wife. His name was Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob would have 12 sons, one of which was Joseph. 
And if you're familiar with Joseph's story, he's the one that got sold off by his brothers to a bunch of slave traders. And they took him to Egypt where he ended up uh, as a servant in Egypt, but ended up as second in command of the entire nation of Egypt because God had favor on Joseph's life. A famine hits the land. His family comes to Egypt because they heard they had food because Joseph prepared for the famine by a dream God gave him. Uh, If you're not following along, that's okay. I'm going really fast. I'm giving you like almost all of Genesis in like two paragraphs here. And, And anyway, the people became so numerous. The people of who? The people of Abraham became so numerous that Egypt was afraid that if they turned against us, we would lose all of our laborers. And so they, they struck them with hard labor and made them slaves. 400 years of that, before 10 plagues, they are, Pharaoh lets them go. They, they cross the Red Sea. They wander the desert for 40 years before they enter the promised land with Joshua. And, and, and so it would be the nation of Israel uh, from one seed of Abraham. So all, all, of, all of these interesting things taking place in the Old Testament... And then when we get to Romans chapter 4, where you are, um, Paul is writing to the Romans. This would, be a, this would be a didactic passage. This is a teaching passage. As, a, as uh, Paul, the author of Romans, the author is, is writing to help bring clarity to what the story we just briefly addressed, the story of Abraham. And so he's kind of teaching and bringing some truths to these people that were stuck on a few things. They were stuck on uh, works-based faith, that God would accept you based upon works, based upon following rules. And so Paul is going to use scripture that they've been using for this, this ideology to show them, no, 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 it's been something different all along. So let's jump in. Romans chapter 4. I'm going to try to talk less and read more. Here we go. Romans chapter 4. It says, What shall... We say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered this matter. In fact, Abraham was justified by works. I'm sorry, if in fact, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. That was written in the Old Testament. Now to the one who works. Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And and then he quotes uh, David from the Old Testament, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is the blessedness only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? Now remember, what was God's covenant to Abraham? It was the sign was in circumcision. And so the Jewish people thought that they were somehow better than anybody else that was not. And so anybody that was not a Jew was called a Gentile. And, uh, and here, this, this church in Rome, they're struggling with the idea that Gentiles can now be in. Because their whole life, Gentiles were out. They didn't accept this mark of circumcision. So they're out, but we're in. But through Jesus, Jesus sends he, his messages, everybody's in. 
And so they're having a hard time coming all together because of kind of their, their history. So verse 9, is the, is the blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? In other words, in what circumstances was it by faith and not by the works of, of the mark of circumcision? Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse, under what circumstances was it, was it credited? Was it, was it after he was circumcised? Was it credited to him as righteousness? Or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness, that he had faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believed but have not been circumcised. Now, here's what's interesting. The Jewish people would all say, the Israelites, remember the nation of Israel, Israelites, their father Abraham. They would always say, our father Abraham, our father Abraham, our father Abraham, who gave us circumcision, who gave us this. He is our father Abraham. Well, now Paul is saying, yeah, your father Abraham is also the father of the uncircumcised. He's not just the father of you, the Israelites, because of circumcision. He's the father of even all the Gentiles too because God made the deal by his faith before he ever received the sign. And they're going, what? You mean they're in too? This is revolutionary. So in order that righteousness might be credited to them as well. Verse 12. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the most I've said that word at church in a long time. Verse 13, we should continue. I think we're past that stuff. It was, not, uh, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. In other words, it was not by works that you guys received this. That he would be heir of the world. But through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law, in other words, for those who depend on works are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless Because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16, therefore, oh, there's therefore. We need to look to see what's therefore, but we just read it. So in other words, because it's by faith and by not works, so because of all of that, it's always been by faith. Verse 16, therefore, the the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into uh, being things that are not. Verse 18, against 
all hope. Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. And I just want to say real quick, I could preach this, but against all hope, people are looking at you and they're saying their life has no hope. Abraham was an old, old man, and against all hope, had a son. And so against all hope, parents, against all hope, you can do something for your family. You can build a legacy in your family. Against all hope, New Life Church can build a legacy that will last until Jesus comes back if we have faith and belief. Verse 19, without weakening, without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened by his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Are you fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he's promised you in your life? Come on, I I hope that today you are fully persuaded of this with faith like Abraham. Verse 22, this is why, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but for all of us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he will deliver over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In other words, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ was for our justification. Justification means it is just as if I never sinned. That's what we get in Jesus. We are justified. It's just as if we never sinned. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's not new content. It's actually continuation. So don't be, don't be uh, put off by the chapter mark of verse, chapter 5. Therefore. So if you start in chapter 5... You need to go back to chapter 4, don't you? So, therefore, in other words, because of faith, because of an unpersuaded faith in the risen Christ, you are now justified. You have been made as though you have never sinned. Therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, not works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, he died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. For if, while we were still 
for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled with him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, okay, so we've been reconciled. Our accounts have been settled. You had a deficit called sin, but your accounts have been settled. The debt has been canceled. You are justified and reconciled. Therefore, verse 12, just as sin entered the world through one man, who was that one man? Adam in the Garden of Eden. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law, which is why we have the Old Testament. Nevertheless, death reigned from time to time from reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even under those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. In other words, the default setting of all of us, the factory reset, is we're sinners. Verse 15, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace in the gift that came by the grace of the one, of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one's sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through a through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life of the one man, Jesus Christ? In other words, Jesus came to undo the mess that man created. Verse 18, almost done. Consequently, just as one trespass, one sin resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just, as, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In other words, the law, the Old Testament, is to show us how messed up we are. That we need a Savior. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is why I would tell you that I think some of the, the, the greatest followers of Jesus right now are probably some of the greatest sinners. I think some of the some of the, the, the highest crime, the worst cities in the world are the greatest candidates for revival because where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more. You can't out sin the God, the grace of God. It just takes 
that step of faith and obedience and justified, cleaned up. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus our Lord. You see, sin brings eternal damnation, but Jesus brings eternal life. Now, chapters 4 and 5 that we just read in Romans, it helps understand so much of what the narrative in the Old Testament speaks of. So when it comes to biblical interpretation, Scripture helps interpret Scripture. And Romans is an incredible didactic book, which means to teach. And, and I love it because Paul is even saying like, okay, in the Scripture where it says this, this is what God means. Like it's, it's, just, it's teaching you. So, like, uh, so sometimes to understand the Bible, you just got to keep reading it. The Bible will help bring clarity. And so I hope that helped you see how Scripture helps us understand Scripture. That, that those two chapters connected old and new uh, from, from our sin to our, our, our new life in Christ. I mean, it's powerful, powerful stuff if you just get in and, and, and you take those seven steps and you're humble, you're reverent, you're prayerful, and, and the such. It'll transform your life. So let's all stand together and let's pray together after the reading of God's Word. I hope, is this helping somebody today? I know this is a bit different. I usually don't read that much. um, But I hope this is helping you. Father, I I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that in a world of fake, in a world of lies, that there is something that we can cling to and know is truth. Your word is true. Your word is true. God, I'm reminded just from what we just read. I'm reminded of, 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 man, I was... I was such a loser when you found me. I was, I, was, I, was, I was in great despair. I was in darkness. I was full of loneliness. And when you found me at my worst time, you had already chosen me. You already demonstrated your love when dying for me, when I was still, still in rebellion and still a sinner. You chose me. So I thank you. I'm reminded, God, of how great is our salvation. So, Lord, I pray that we would be inspired to continue allowing your word to transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, New Life Church, thank you so much for joining us today. If this is your first time joining us and you'd like to learn a little bit more about New Life Church, you can text the word CONNECT to the number 765-347-9127. Again, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you guys next time.